encouragement cards that get sent our way. So please take time this week to do that. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. When Jesus asked, was asked about the central message of the Old Testament, He gave an answer. In fact, they asked um, his, his, uh, his, it says in Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes came having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he'd answered them well. Asked Jesus, which is the first or which is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Jesus identified the passage we're going to look at tonight as the most important commandment in the Old Testament. I want you just to think about that. The Word of God, the Word, who comes God in the flesh, is asked, what do you find to be the most important or essential part of the Old Testament to know? And he says this passage right here tonight. This is it. This is the core of Old Testament doctrine. This is the core of what it means to follow God. As you were reading through your Old Testament, hopefully some of you are still on, 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 uh, on the, the, the path towards reading through your Bible this year. I encourage you to keep doing that. And as you're reading it, you come across passages like this. I wonder, did this passage scream to you that it was the most important part of the Old Testament? Maybe. Maybe not. Um, to Jesus, he identified this. And so I asked myself, what is it about this chapter that makes it such a cornerstone of the Old Testament that Jesus would say it is the greatest commandment in the law? Um, you know, a lot of Christians today downplay actual obedience to God because we emphasize having the right attitude about God. We're, we're, we're thinking it's more important to have the right perspective, the right attitude or heart than to do. Maybe we're afraid of being charged with legalism. Do I really have to do certain things to be a disciple of Christ? Can I just be, right? Can I be? Do I have to do? Can I not just be? Um, they're afraid of the looks from our culture who thinks obedience to God is prudish or old-fashioned. Uh, so we're tempted to make faith a personal thing, a personal matter, something we don't talk about in public. It's like politics. You don't talk about it at the dinner table. You know, you be polite. You don't talk about religion. Should our faith, should our religion be a personal matter only about the internal person? Or should our faith be expressed in the world around us? Can our faith be public? Another part that this passage addresses is about how do we pass on, how do we inculcate the faith to our children and grandchildren? How do we make sure that what's important to us and what is vitally important for, for their knowledge of God, how do we make sure that gets passed on? As we recognize the value of truth, I think we become more and more consumed with the importance of this issue. Let's go to God and ask for His wisdom as we look at this passage tonight in the short amount of time we have. Father, we thank You that Your Word gives us answers to these questions that we ponder, with questions we wonder about. And Lord, it provokes our heart to obey you. And so I ask today that as Moses preached to the children of Israel, so we might listen, we might obey, and we might uh, incorporate this formative message in our hearts. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to be the people we ought to be, that you call us to be. And we thank you for your grace that enables us to walk according to your path. We thank you for the power that is given to us through the Spirit, through Christ, to follow you. We thank you for who we are in our Lord Jesus. 
the one who's been the one who saved us, redeems us, and makes us his own. Pray, Lord, we could love you with the heart that we need to love you with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy 1, I'm not going to have you turn there, but this is the setting for this sermon. Deuteronomy is a sermon from Moses. It says in Deuteronomy 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on the side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf between Paran, Tophel, and Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is an 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kiddush Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them after he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and Edre. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites and to the neighboring places in the plain and the mountains in the lowlands in the south and on the seacoast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and their descendants after them. This is the context of the sermon that we have in the book of Deuteronomy. And so we find ourselves in Deuteronomy 6. If you're not there, turn there. Deuteronomy 6. And we have this passage given to us, this essential passage. What we're going to see from the beginning here is that we must obey as a demonstration of our devotion. Obedience is coming from our hearts as a demonstration of our devotion because God's revealed law is for a purpose. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Now, these three descriptors occur throughout the chapter as a description of that which the Lord gives Moses to the children of Israel, Mount Sinai. God's law, handed down, gives us that the way of the children of Israel will to live as a covenant nation of God. He says he, these are the, the statutes and the judgments and the commandments which God has commanded to teach you. Look at verse 2. He gives us the purpose. Why give these laws? Well, the purpose of giving these laws was that they may fear the Lord their God. Notice he says that you may fear the Lord your God to keep. That is, you are to honor and respect Him and treat Him with dignity. You are to fear God. To honor the Lord and to fear God is to order your life around Him. Everything in your life is ordered around God's perspective. And when you fear the Lord, what happens? What flows out of your fear of God? You will obey Him. You may fear the God to keep His statutes and judgments. And this is just the way it works. When you fear God, you keep His commandments. And what's the result of this? He says in verse 3, Therefore, hear Israel, be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you. When you obey God, God says, I will bless you. It will be well with you, and you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You will multiply, and you will be in a land flowing with milk and honey. Why milk and honey? 
Well, it's amazing. Milk and honey are not produced by human beings. They're produced by animals for human beings. You don't have to work to get milk and honey. Now, those of you who have milk cows would beg to differ that. I understand. But the idea is that the cows produce milk. The bees produce honey. We just collect it. And he says this land is flowing with milk and honey. What a blessing. You walk into a place that is fruitful, and God says this is revealed for a purpose. He says, I'm giving you this law not to make your life hard, but to make your life bountiful. I'm giving you these rules because I want to bless you. And in order for you to be blessed, you have to live by my way of doing things. God has ordered the universe. God has ordered the universe in a certain way. If we live in God's wisdom, we live according to His rules and His way, and it makes life so much better because we're living in accordance to how He has designed the world. And so God's revealed law is for a purpose, and God's revealed law must be passed down. Look at verse 4. And here is the central part where Jesus identifies as the crucial, the most essential part of the Old Testament. He says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord, Yahweh our God, Yahweh, the Lord is one. Now, those, most of you know this, but just to review, the word Lord, when it's in all caps in your Bible like that, if it's small caps, that is the covenant name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you want to, to say that. And the Jewish people would not say the name of God for fear of saying His name in vain. So they developed a tradition, which is when they came to the word uh, Y-H-W-H, which we say Yahweh, when they came to that name, instead of pronouncing that name, they would say Adonai, which in English is Lord. And so that tradition has carried itself down in our English Bibles even today, where most of your English Bibles will use the word Lord in all caps to let you know that that is the covenant name of God. And so if you read it again, he says, hear Israel. Hear means pay attention. It's the word Shema. In fact, you may have heard a, a Jewish person talk about the Shema. The Shema is this phrase. In my Hebrew Bible, it's set aside. It's like centered and emphasized. This is a big deal. Hear, O Israel, pay attention, look here. In fact, the Hebrew people recite this phrase. What does he want the people to hear first? He wants them to reveal. He reveals who he is. This is what he wants them to know. Monotheism the belief in a single God who created all and not a swarm of equal and competing temperamental gods who you must appease. Huge difference between monotheism and polytheism. This is talking about the Lord is one. He is the only God. There is a uniqueness of God. The Lord is our God. He is the one we worship. But there is a unity of God. He is one. He, we're not polytheistic. We don't believe in many gods. We believe in one God, the one Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. There are not many gods to be worshipped from many pagan nations. He is a unitary single being who is a witness of Scripture, who identifies himself as Trinity, one God, or being three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the testimony of the entire Scripture there. He is beyond and above any of the gods of the nations. He's not merely the first of many gods or the highest among gods. Yahweh is the unitary, powerful creator God. He is one. Isaiah 43, verse 10, I forgot to put this on my PowerPoint, but it says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, understand I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor there sh shall there be after me. There are some religions out there, there are some cults, like the Mormon cult will teach you that there is an infinite number of gods and that you too can be elevated to being a god. That is blasphemous. 
Isaiah tells us this, that there is no God formed after him. He is the God. In fact, one of the huge differences here between the, what God is teaching these Jewish people and everyone else around them, it's, it's amazing when you study uh, ancient, I love studying like ancient uh, Near Eastern culture because it's so interesting how different they are from the Jews. They all believed in these many, many gods. And the problem with many gods is you never knew what was going to happen. I mean, they were temperamental just like you and me. If, you, if, if you, something bad happened to you, well, I guess the gods weren't happy with me. Why were they unhappy? I don't know. What's the best you can do? Maybe sacrifice some sort of something to them to appease them. There's no logic behind it. There's no relationship there. It's just temperamental. Or maybe the gods got in with a war with each other and got angry with each other and started fighting. Kind of like this morning, we talked about Baal going on vacations or taking a break or meditating. It's like God may be in a bad mood. Oh, well, that's just the way life goes. It was very difficult for the pagan person to have any kind of confidence that they had, a, they had no relationship with their God. Yet what we have here is a self-revelation of God who says, I want to tell you who I am. I'm telling you something special. And I'm not only telling you who I am, I'm revealing how you should respond and this is, is fascinating. God says, you, I am the Lord, I am one. Then how, how would you, like, if I, was, if I had made this up, if I was just writing this, I, I would imagine the response would be, be, be terrified. He's the one God who created all things. Run and hide. That's not what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What? The great God of all things is commanding you to love Him. He's like, your heart should come and be warm to me. He says, I love you, and you should love me. Reveal how we should respond to God out of love. Love is commanded. Love can be commanded. You can choose what you love, and God says, you must love me. So when your heart does not love God, it's a sin. God says we are to love or to love. In fact, Psalm 31, 23 says, Oh, love the Lord, all you His saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He heard my voice and my supplications. Love. Secondly, He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Look at verse 6. These words which I command you today shall be what? In your heart. You need to internalize this. This is not just the external appeasing of a God. These are the commands that need to work themselves into my heart and to who I am as a person. I need to embrace them and love them. They should become a part of who I am. In a word, these are formative words. They form us into the people we ought to be. We, we ought to be people that when you poke us, Scripture comes out that we talk in terms of Scripture, we use Scripture terminology, we use Scripture phrases, we use Scripture to talk about life because this is God's way of thinking, and this is how we are to live. They are to be in our hearts, and it also reveals our responsibilities to our family, to your family. God reveals the responsibility to your family. Look at verse 7. You shall, commanded, you shall teach them diligently to your children. What does it look like to teach them diligently to your children? Well, that phrase, that method of teaching is the repeated, diligent teaching or speaking of. The idea of commanding diligently is the Hebrew word shanan. Now, just for a moment, I want to talk about this. This is fascinating. The word shanan 
has the idea, the, be, the best analogy that you, I could find is the idea of sharpening a knife. It is not something that happens over, uh, in a moment. It's not something that happens just once. It's a repeated action, happens over and over again. It is a constant repetition. It's not just an overnight trip. You do not teach your children about God by taking them on an overnight trip one, one time in their entire life. It is the repeated daily existence of God's Word in your house. It is not a block class. When I was in college, I used to take block classes. A block class is great because you read all your stuff ahead of time. You go for one week to class, like six hours a day. You sit there, you plow through it, and then you kind of write your papers, and you're done, and you just kind of flush it from your mind. You're like, ooh, I got that done with. I don't even remember what it was about, but I got it over with, and that's all that mattered, right? It's not about that. It is a marathon, It is the constant slow drip of knowledge over time in constant little situations. Repeated action, shanan, to teach diligently is that word that means to go over and over again. And where should this happen? The place of your training. Look at where he says you're to do this. You shall talk of them, that's God's words, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the road. That's the way. Walk by the road. When you lie down and when you rise up. He's saying, when you're sitting around at your house, talk about the Word of God. When you're not sitting around at your house, that is walking by the road, talk about the Word of God. When you're going to bed at night, talk about God's Word. When you're getting up in the morning, talk about God's Word. He's making a point. This is an all-encompassing training for your family, parents, grandparents, You have an obligation, responsibility. You are commanded by God. If you have children, you have been given a responsibility to formatively inculcate the Word of God. That means you put it in their life, and it forms them into the kind of people God wants them to be. It is all the time. You don't get a vacation from this kind of practice, this kind of work. It happens at the house. It happens outside the house. It happens in the morning. It happens at night. This is not just a one quick devotion. This is a how we respond to everything in our life. And there's a ubiquity of the training. Look at verse 8. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Even in times of silence, the testimonies of the law should be ever present. Whatever you do, as a sign on your hand. Whatever you see, like a frontlet between your eyes, when you go to your house, on the doorposts of your house, on your gates, in your living quarters, your domestic, your personal life should be consumed with following God. This is not just about living in the church service, in this case, in the temple or the tabernacle and worshiping God there. This is about your house. This is about where you live. This is about where you do your business of life. What I'm point I'm making is, is that, as I asked at the beginning about how Should we separate our public and private worship? And the point here is that there is no separation. You must worship God wherever you are. If you're in public in a church, this is great. It's easy to worship God when you're sitting around people. You know when it's hard to worship God? It's hard to worship God when when you don't get a good night's sleep. And then you wake up in the morning and then you, you snap at your wife or you're angry at your kids or you're frustrated about the bill you got you didn't expect to come in that time and you're trying to figure out how this is going to work out. That's, that's where it's hard to worship God. But God says that's when it must happen. And then notice we obey. We obey here as a demonstration of our devotion. Secondly, I want you to see that we must obey as a response to blessing. 
We should obey as a response to blessing. Look at verse 10 as we see God gives us what we don't deserve. So it shall be. When the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full. Notice the land that was promised, verse 10. He says, I'm going to fulfill my promises here. I promise it to your fathers. And these are all undeserved blessings. You know, a lot would change if we thought of all of our blessings as undeserved blessings instead of deserved blessings. If we, I've talked with several of you who've said, you know what, I said, how are you feeling? Because I know some of you have struggled with your health recently. And I, I think it's been three or four people who have, I've asked that question, how are you feeling? They said, oh, I have nothing to complain about. With everything going on with people in our church and the suffering they've gone through, what I'm facing is nothing. That, that's a spirit of someone who sees all the blessings they have I mean, this is undeserved blessings. God's given me so much. What do I have to complain about? The problem is we, we, get, we get, when this happens, when we get blessings, which we'll talk about in a second, there's a temptation we have. There's a temptation we have, but we're, uh, wait just a moment. Notice he says, large and beautiful cities. They didn't build these cities. Beautiful houses they did not fill. Wells you did not dig. Vineyards you did not plant. Let me just say frankly that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. You have great things in your house, praise God. God gave that to you. You should praise God. You should thank God for what He has given. And, and keep a heart that says, Lord, thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. And this will lead us to having a right response to the blessings we have. It'll keep us from being demanding. It'll keep us from being entitled. And the second thing is, notice this, uh, starting in verse 12, that God warns us of the danger of blessing, that is complacency and covetousness. I want you to see what happens. If you look at the last phrase of verse 11, he says, when you have eaten in our full, there's a danger. That when you've eaten in our full, that, 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 that God has blessed people. You don't have any needs. Beware, he says, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to the house, from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods the gods of the people all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Don't forget God rescued you from bondage. Don't forget where you came from. You should fear the Lord and serve Him. There's actually a connection between these two words. The word house of bondage is house of service. And then he says, so now you serve God, Neved. In fact, Obadiah, his name is servant. We talked about him this morning. Obed, is the same word here for serve, yevet, service, house of service, you serve God. God freed you from the slavery of men so you could be a slave to Him. Does that sound a lot like Paul to you, right? Being freed from sin, now being a slave of righteousness. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Look at verse 14. He says, don't be covetous. Don't go out after other gods. Don't desire other gods like the people around you. You see the people who are prosperous around you. You say, how do they get that prosperous? How'd they get that big house? How'd they, how'd they get those crops to grow that, that well? It must be their God that they're worshiping. He's like, don't do that. Don't be covetous. They worship false gods, and you might be tempting to worship them. Don't go there because God is a jealous God. He will not allow this false worship to continue. Be obedient to God. Commit yourself to serving Him. That is the response to God's gifts. Thirdly, I want you to notice that we should obey as an antidote to doubt. And this is interesting. 
Because when we doubt God, when we have a lot, the tendency when we are rich and full is to doubt God. Isn't that amazing? It's not when we're poor and when we have nothing that we doubt God. It's when we have everything we need. We take a step back and say, what do I need God for? I've got everything I need. There's a reason that as our, as our country becomes more wealthy, we become less godly because we deny God and we doubt God. But obedience is this antidote. Look at what he says here. Number verse 16, we are to learn from our past. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him at Massa. Now, can you imagine through all this, they're sitting there and then Moses uh, speaking for the Lord says, don't tempt the Lord as you tempted him at Massa. And they're like, oh no, he brought that story up again. Oh, that was a bad failure. Why did you have, we were doing so well, Moses. We were remembering the good times. We were thinking about the future. Why did you have to bring up the past? Because you have to learn from the past. And he says, I want you to remember a big failure. And if you look at the reason they failed, Exodus chapter 17 is the story. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't realize the text was that small when I put it up there. I apologize. But if you want to, you can turn there or you can try to follow along if you have really good eyesight. But, but here is what the story happens here at, and this will be familiar to you. Exodus 17, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of that place Massa. There it is and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel. Notice this last phrase, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Their great sin was the sin of doubting God's goodness and His plan. They said, Moses, did you bring us here to kill us? How did we get here? God answers their cry of despair. The name of the place Meribah means quarrel. Massa means melting or failure because of the contention of the people. They question God. They tested God. Essentially, they're, pres they're questioning the presence of God. When you doubt the goodness and presence of God, you are sinning against Him because you must remember the past so you can deal with this. Remember. Remember the times in the past, how God has been good, so you can contextualize and embrace the present. Look at verse 17. After he reminds them of how they failed, he says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. So what should you do now? You can't change the past, but you can obey God now. He says, keep his commandments, keep his testimonies, keep his statutes that he commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. So many problems will be solved if you just did what was right and what was good. Is, ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now, is this right and good? This is like Sunday school level. Ready? Is it right? Is it good? If it's not, don't do it. If it is, do it. Do what is right and good, not in your sight, but in the sight of whom? What was the failure of the people in the book of Judges? They did what was right 
in their own eyes. They said, well, it looks good to me. Seems all right to me. They don't consult God. Do, if we know God's Word, though, we can know what's right in God's eyes. We can do what's good and right in God's eyes. Obedience is the antidote to doubting God. Embrace the present and hope in the future. Look at verse 18. That it may be well with you. Here we are talking about the future again. You may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out the evil enemies before you as God, as the Lord has spoken. It will be well. You will go in and possess. You will, you will do what God has called you to do. All these are very future-looking. As we wrap this up, I'd like to draw your attention to this last point, which is that we must obey as a way of leaving a legacy. How do you leave a legacy with your family? How do you leave a legacy? Well, first, you tell the story of God's redemption. When your son asks you, verse 20, in the time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Why do we do this stuff? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and Yahweh showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land to which he swore to our fathers. Earlier, we had the command to teach our children diligently, to shanan, to over and over teach. So here, Moses prescribes the moment of the child who asks the question every child loves to ask. What's the question every child loves to ask? Why? And notice he doesn't say, parent, to say, because I said so. Isn't that the tempting thing to do as a parent? Say, just because. Just do it. Stop asking me questions. Just do what I tell you to do. And they say, but why? And you say, well, here's why. And Moses prescribed, here's what you're going to say. You're going to give the story of God's redemption when you talk about why you obey. Okay, you want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. He says, we were slaves. Talk about what you used to be. Remind them, hey, things weren't always this way. The reason we do weird stuff, I mean, the Jews were a strange group of people in the midst of Canaan. Strange. They wore different clothes than everybody else. They were very different. They ate different food than everybody else. They only worshiped one God, and you couldn't see their God. Like everybody else, they had their gods. They carried them around with them like G.I. Joes. I mean, they just, they did. That's what they did. They carried them around. They worshiped them. They, they, prayed, they prayed to them. Hey, this is my God right here, and this is my God, and this is the goddess, and this is what we do. And their gods were full of all this immorality and all this pleasure and all this feasting and stuff, and they had parties, and the Jews were, had different kinds of, uh, of sacrifices that involved uh, mourning. And so the Jewish people could look with, with other, there's is it no doubt in my mind, it's, it's obvious why the Jewish people would often look at the pagan nations and say, hey, why can't we do that? That was like a lot of fun. They look at the other nations with their kings. They say, we want a king. Let's raise up one like Saul. See, see the, the Jewish people were very different. And so a Jewish young person growing up in a pagan culture looks around and says, man, we're different. Like we wear different clothes. We don't eat that food. We don't do that stuff. Why do we do this? And he says, you've got to explain it. And here's what you say, we were slaves, but God rescued us. He brought us out of this slavery with a mighty hand. God's power was awesome. He delivered us from that. Thirdly, God showed his power when he did it, verse 22, and he brought us here, 
or he brought us out of there so he could bring us here. You're here for a purpose. So when your children ask you, why do we do this? Tell them the story of how God rescued you. And it follows the same pattern. I mean, look at it. You could say, I was a slave of sin. God rescued me with his mighty hand. God showed his power over sin when he did it. And he brought me out of that life so he could bring me here. We had a uh, missionary interview tonight. We were able to watch Joey Tech on. And I, I, told, I was just talking with a brother over here about Joey. And Joey's past and his history is amazing. He got saved out of a very rough background. And he will tell you how God rescued him. He doesn't like to gloat on that. He doesn't like to talk about that in public. But sometime, if you ever get a chance to talk to him, hear his story of how God rescued him out of sin and out of a terrible, terrible life. And God redeemed him and is using him. God is using him there. He took him from where he was so he could put him where he is now. And that's where it is for you. God has brought you where you are for a reason. He took you out of where you were so he could put you where you are. We need to tell the story of God's redemption. You need to tell your family the story of God's redemption and give hope for the future. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God and for our our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. He might preserve us alive. God has your best in mind. He has given you hope to preserve us. What is it about this chapter that makes it such a cornerstone of the Old Testament that Jesus would say it is the greatest commandment in the law? Yes, this chapter shows us the importance of obedience, but it shows us our responsibility is not just to ourselves. I want to hone in on this as we close. We live in a very individualistic society. We live in a society where we think what matters most is what matters to us. So it's, it's not that, it's that I need to do my thing and you do your thing. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, and everyone will be happy. And that is supposed to be something for uh, some sort of prescription for a thriving society. But God says here, guess what? You have responsibilities and debts you owe to other people. You owe people in regard to this. You owe the people around you to follow God. There are, there are several things here. First, there are multi-generational blessings and responsibilities. You must teach and inculcate the truth in the lives of the young. It matters what you teach your kids. Your own children are your first priority of discipleship. What are you teaching them is important. What are the, the heroes you put up in front of them? What do you put on the doorpost of your home? What do you talk about when you rise up and when you go down, when you're walking, when you're uh, in the house and when you're on the road? We have a responsibility, multi-generational blessings and responsibilities, so God's ways should permeate all of life. Our American culture today doesn't mind if you're a Christian as long as it stays within your private life. But our religious life is not a once-a-week thing. It impacts everything we do. It impacts what we think about. Our whole life should be permeated by God's way, and I believe it should be both internal and external. You love God with all your heart, but you also put the words of God on your house. There's, there's the inside, yes, but there's the outside. And if people don't know you're a Christian... I think there might be a problem. I think your life should demonstrate Christ. It should smell of Christ. It should be the aroma of Christ wherever you go. Amen. It's not enough to be internal in your 
walk with God. And then thirdly, obviously, worship God only. I mentioned that this morning, but God is not one who tolerates split allegiances. And here he says, the Lord is one. So worship God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, there's no room for anything else to be loved with that kind of love. He is the devotion you have. And there is a real danger of forgetting what God has done for us. Verse 12, he says, lest you forget. It would be hard to believe that someone who seen what they had seen would forget. But isn't it true that no matter how good God has been to us, we have the tendency to forget? We forget. So tell stories. Tell stories of how good God has been. Our family is a family loves to tell stories, and people make fun of us for it. But we sit around, and we tell the same stories over and over and over again. And, and we all pretend like we've never heard them before. So we just laugh, and we, we, and, but we know the punchline's coming. We know what happens in that story. And we are, a, we are a family who loves to tell stories. And you know what? I would encourage you to be a family who tells stories. Tell what God has done. Remind yourselves of how good God has been. Tell stories, not bad stories, not stories that aren't true. I'm talking about true stories of God's working in your life. It will make a huge difference in your family. God says, hear, O Israel, listen, God is one, so love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Father, we ask tonight that you'd help us to love you with everything we have. I pray that we'll be people who listen and obey, and we would trust you and obey you. We would not live selfishly, individualistically, but we would recognize our responsibility we have to those around us. Father, we could be used by you in mighty ways. I pray, God, you'd help us. We know that not everybody has the opportunity to invest in young children right now, but there are people in this church that they can invest in. There are young children they can still invest in, young people they can invest in. There are family members who they can invest in. There are friends they can invest in. Father, we have a responsibility and an obligation to invest in others and to speak the truth no matter where we go. I pray your blessings on us as we go our separate ways tonight, Father. May we live out this truth 